How to Reduce Partisan Animosity, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Republicans and Democrats dislike and misunderstand each other, increasingly distancing themselves from those in the other camp. In tandem, anti-democratic attitudes are on the rise, especially in defense of each partisan side. But some strategies are effective for reducing polarization, animosity, and anti-democratic attitudes. This week, I talked to Rob Willer of Stanford University about the Strengthening Democracy Challenge and a recent mass collaboration he co-authored, Mega Study Identifying Effective Interventions to Strengthen Americans' Democratic Attitudes. He tested 25 short interventions like videos and informational messages, finding that many reduced partisan animosity and some reduced support for anti-democratic practices. The effects lasted and provided some ideas for real-world tactics to tackle polarization. The results offer some good news for a change. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. So your team recently tested uh, 25 interventions to reduce partisan animosity and support for undemocratic practices in the American public. How did you go about doing that? Yeah. Uh, So what we did was a few years ago, we had started doing research on, you know, theoretical mechanisms, techniques that could improve levels of partisan animosity and anti-democratic attitudes in the American mass public. And pretty quickly, we saw that we had some ideas, maybe even a a good idea or two, but that these were really, really difficult outcomes to try to treat. And so we thought, well, if we really take these outcomes seriously, we would try to do the study that would generate the most knowledge as quickly and efficiently as possible. So we sort of flipped it around and said, what are, rather than working the conventional mode of asking ourselves what our best idea was, we sort of went out and asked the field, what are all of your best ideas? And we crowdsourced the problem. We put out a call for submissions that we could test uh, for intervention ideas, you know, anything we could embed in a survey experiment in less than eight minutes that we could administer to a, you know, a a representative sample of Americans. And, um, you know, and we said, you know, if you've got an idea, we'll also work with you to help, you know, get it over uh, the walls that we tried to create as low as possible. And, uh, and we got tons of submissions. We actually made this very specific uh, effort to recruit submissions from the practitioner community, people working on democracy and partisan animosity and, uh, you know, in the kind of nonprofit sector and the activist space in the U.S. And we wound up with way more interest and submissions than we had expected, uh, about 250 uh, people or 250 different submissions from about 400 people actually, you know, well beyond the U.S., 17 countries on four continents, just a a way larger amount of interest in submitting to the challenge than we expected. And then from this, we identified the 25 interventions we thought were most promising uh, for test. And then we tested those in a massive, like 32,000 person survey experiment that we conducted in uh, spring of last year of 2022. Um, and those 25 interventions were tested against uh, a couple different control conditions. And this was an effort to, to figure out which of these interventions move the needle on partisan animosity, anti-democratic attitudes, and a bunch of other outcomes, and then which of these interventions were, were best relative to one another. And what were the biggest findings and takeaways? Well, you know, we found a lot of really interesting uh, stuff. So we found... For all of the outcomes that we focused on, there were a couple different strategies that united the most successful interventions. 
So just thinking about partisan animosity or what political scientists call, you know, affective polarization, thinking about that first, what we found was that uh, first that overall, the interventions we tested were very good at reducing partisan animosity, much better than we had expected and much better than academic forecasters predicted. So 22 out of the 25 interventions significantly reduced partisan animosity, which is pretty striking. Um, also, reductions of partisan animosity were greater in terms of, uh, you know, standardized effect size than reductions of any of the other uh, attitudes that we measured. I mean, social distance preferences from uh, rival partisans, which is really, really similar, had, had you know, a similar kind of effect size, uh, but it's also just a very similar outcome. Um, and the two strategies that stuck out there as most effective were, were these. So one was presenting people with sympathetic exemplars of folks from the other political side, you know, the rival partisans who were engaging respectfully or um, disconfirming stereotypes or just being sympathetic in some sort of fashion. And then the second strategy for this outcome that stuck out was invoking some sort of overarching common identities that would connect people across party lines. For example, uh, the common identity of we, we are all Americans. Um, and these, it's interesting because these are kind of like, if you were to survey a bunch of social psychologists about how to reduce animosity across, you know, uh, lines of group conflict, those might be like the first two things they would say is like, present people with a really sympathetic exemplar and also invoke an overarching common identity. So we kind of came out with a, a pretty intuitive finding there. I think for the the various anti-democratic attitudes that we measured, things were maybe more novel, at least to me, uh, the findings were not necessarily what I would expect. So one was we found that the most effective strategy for improving Americans' democratic attitudes was to correct their misperceptions of the views of their rival partisans, to correct misperceptions of how much rival partisans uh, supported eroding democratic norms, how much rival partisans dehumanized members of their of their party, um, and and so on. And so the this is this is a you know there's a, there's a kind of a mini literature that's emerged on these so-called meta perceptions, partisan in this case partisans' perceptions of their rival partisans' views on things, views towards them, views on the world, etc. And because people have really, really inaccurate partisan stereotypes at baseline, this turns out to be a quite efficacious way to intervene. So that strategy stuck out. And then I'll, I'll highlight maybe one other strategy that was effective for intervening on anti-democratic attitudes. And, and that was to make more salient the risk of democratic collapse and just how bad democratic collapse looks. So this was an intervention that was submitted by Katie Clayton and Mike Toms, a political science PhD student and faculty member here at Stanford. And here it leveraged the comparative politics literature and just video from other countries, places like Turkey, Venezuela, uh, video showing the kind of disorder and police repression on the streets that you see in settings where they're dealing with some sort of you know major democratic collapse. And it was narrated to emphasize like, Democratic collapse may seem like it can't happen in a place like America, but it can, and it can kind of, it can happen fast when things get, you know, when things start to slip away, they can get bad very quickly and an unimaginable reality can set in. Uh, so it was very compelling and, and, and really quite scary. Uh, and it also culminated in footage of the Capitol riot 
um, which helped to kind of connect the dots of like, no, this really could happen, you know, in America. So these are the strategies that stuck out the most to me uh, as most effective. So let's go through a few more of the individual interventions to give people an idea of what we have in mind. I think one of them was a Heineken commercial, uh, and there were other ways of um, creating positive contact or common identity. Um, what were some of your your favorite effective ones? Yeah, yeah. The, the number one intervention, just in terms of absolute effect size for reducing partisan animosity, was an intervention that it had a few components, but it most centrally featured this video that Heineken's like UK, you know, chapter uh, put together in the wake of the 2017 Brexit vote. Uh, and this video, it's a very cool video. It's definitely worth watching for anybody who hasn't seen it. Uh, it's called Worlds Apart. And in it, Heineken brought in pairs of ideologically, uh, you know, divergent uh, folks from Britain, British folks, uh, to have conversations while they built a bar together and then drank a pint of Heineken beer. And despite the quality of the beer, these interactions actually went really, really well. I don't have to tell you, Matt, you run a bar yourself. So, uh, but that uh, all shade on Heineken aside, they, uh, they really did a great job crafting this video so that they've selected these interactions that went like really, really well and were really respectful and even kind of funny uh, and heartwarming. And there's a critical point at it in the video where these pairs of folks, conservative and liberal, have found a lot of common ground. They're getting along great. And then they're shown video uh, together. They're shown video of them being interviewed about their views, which are very strong and ideological from before the interaction. And now they have to talk through that. Um, and that's, I think, actually a really critical part of it is that it's one thing to make nice with strangers, but then when you're really accountable to what your views are when you're in private, you know, when you express them with co-partisans, let's say, uh, now you really need to talk through the tough stuff that separates you. And they do a good job of it. So this video is very effective. It's really interesting to me that this is a video that was effective five years later in another country. Um, now, the ideological differences map really cleanly to the U.S. It's like, trans rights, it's, you know, immigration, you know, and so on. So it, it climate change. So it is very relatable. And then it might be slightly less threatening as well, you know, um, to see this. Uh, it's a proxy battle. You know, it's not the same. It's not, you know, it's not the U.S. partisan divide. So you don't map directly to anybody in it. Um, might be less likely to elicit defensiveness. Then the second most effective intervention for reducing partisan animosity was an intervention that was submitted by a team of scholars, mostly at NYU, which uh, uh, social psychologists primarily, and it it used a whole bunch of techniques from the social psychology literature. So they really took advantage of the fact that we didn't say you had just used one theoretical mechanism or technique at once. And so they were like, great, we're going to win this thing. We're going to we're going to do three or four things. But if I was to highlight it, so it included corrections of misperceptions of the views of rival partisans. Uh, you know, it, it included some, I believe, elite cues from trusted in-group leaders, I believe, if I recall correctly. But then the most central element, I think, was the invocation of a common American identity, which it emphasized a lot. And the scholars submitting it were, you know, steeped in social identity theory. So this would be a technique they would be quite good at. And that was a very effective uh, intervention as well. 
And what about uh, some of the ones that did not work uh, as well? What did what did we learn about what doesn't work? Yeah, so this is, I think, as interesting as what worked. Uh, one thing that did not work as well as you might think is invoking uh, overlap in the views of Democrats and Republicans. Uh, I think I've seen this work uh, in other research, and I think that it could work. So it might just be the implementation. Uh, it definitely is one of the most striking things when you look at patterns of polarization in the American public that Americans' attitudes, especially less politically knowledgeable Americans, are not that terribly polarized and are not trending to get that much more polarized. They're sorting to parties, of course, but they're not, you know, like actual distribution of attitudes. It's not strikingly polarized, but then affective polarization steadily growing, steadily growing. That's probably because sorting is more related to affective polarization than attitudinal polarization is per se. But uh, it also looks to me uh, as an intervention opportunity of like, oh, you know, if the affective polarization is outstripping the attitudinal polarization, uh, but that people think of their party identity as rooted in their attitudes, then let's leverage that gap. Um, and so uh, an intervention called party overlap tried to do that and didn't it wasn't that successful. So maybe there's another way to do it. I don't know. It was a very intuitive approach. Another intervention that didn't have any effect on partisan animosity, but which I thought could, was one that tried to argue, tried to invoke a common identity as uh, the following, a kind of social class-based identity. And it said, look, Democrats and Republicans are divided uh, politically, but really almost all of them have much more in common with one another in that they're getting screwed economically while a very small percentage of folks are taking you know the lion's share of, of profits in the american system and this has been accelerated during the pandemic when the super rich are getting really rich and normal americans are getting unemployed and so on and so on so uh, i just for me with my own <laughs> my own political background i was like yes that's exactly right <laughs> and so i thought this would be potentially compelling and it didn't move the needle on partisan animosity even though it did try to invoke a common identity. And I think that fits, you know, that fits pretty well with the literature on how hard it is to craft uh, class-based identities for political mobilization in the U.S. Um, that hasn't generally worked. You know, see Seymour Martin Lipset and, and others on this topic. Uh, that's a tough thing to make work. So, or at least across party lines it is. Then um, one last thing that uh, that didn't work very well that I would have thought was an intervention that sought to ameliorate feelings of threat that each party might have. So tell on the basis of their party's standing and power in the country. So it told Democrats, hey, if you think about it, you have lots and lots of power in the system, like Democrats have the presidency and both houses of Congress, which was true at the time. And they have, uh, you know, de demographic advantages in the future. And, you know, they should not feel threatened at all by Republicans and then did something similar with Republicans with the Supreme Court and so on and uh, and geographic advantages in the Senate and the Electoral College. So it just made a case that one need not feel threatened if one is a Democrat or did the same thing for Republicans. And it didn't move the needle at all, but I, it had a logic to it. It had a clear theoretical logic. It could have worked conceivably. Uh, so I think it's insightful, the ones that don't work as well. 
it seemed harder uh, to move uh, anti-democratic practice support uh, than uh, partisan animosity, um, but it also seemed like most of the interventions were geared more towards partisan animosity. So do, have we learned anything about how connected uh, those attitudes uh, and their sources are uh, and uh, whether it is just harder to move uh, the anti-democratic uh, support attitudes than the partisan attitudes? Yeah, well, it's a great observation. And I think uh, I was actually talking to Brendan Nyhan recently about the research, and he said that he thought this was the most interesting finding, that the partisan animosity was so much more malleable than the democratic attitudes or really everything else that we studied. And I, and I, think, it, I think it is an interesting finding that, that we don't entirely understand you know, uh, the, the causes of, so, of this pattern. So the first thing I would highlight as a, as a potential cause is just the field has been way more focused on reducing partisan animosity uh, than on improving democratic attitudes. Like democratic attitudes have only become a focus in the last couple of years. Partisan animosity has a, you know, a decade long literature. It also is something that's been studied across disciplines more. So like uh, partisan animosity is immediately legible to social psychologists who study intergroup conflict. Uh, often in settings like Israel and Palestine, they say, aha, we have a whole suite of ideas and methods for attacking this. Let's go after it. Whereas the anti-democratic attitudes, they to even understand how they work. You have to understand like democratic institutions. And so it's, it's just something that hasn't commanded as much attention outside of political science uh, yet, uh, whereas partisan animosity definitely has. Uh, also, the practitioner space is much more robustly focused on partisan animosity than on anti-democratic attitudes. Um, I don't know exactly why that is, but I mean, that's itself sort of phenomenologically interesting that you have thousands of activists that are really interested in partisan animosity and reducing it that feel their communities and their families being cleaved apart by these divisions, but, but affectively cleaved apart that are less concerned about democratic stability. And I, I think there, you know, democratic stability has emerged with Trump as a major American concern, whereas the partisan animosity has been something we've been thinking about and writing about since, you know, at least the early 2000s or even the 90s. You know, people have been saying, like, it seems like polarization is getting worse and more heated for, you know, decades now. So there's just more momentum for people to be upset about that, have thought about it and done research on how to reduce it. Um, or activism on how to reduce it. So that would be the main reason that I would highlight. But I even think, having said that, that even if we had a similar knowledge base for both problems, that it would be harder to achieve uh, the same effect sizes for anti-democratic attitudes, because at least with the way we measured anti-democratic attitudes, we juxtaposed the defense of democratic norms against partisan interests. So here we were heavily influenced by Levitsky and Ziblad and, and Graham and Zvolik, who have an excellent recent APSR article where we said uh, to ourselves, we implicitly said, OK, it's not hard to get people to enforce democratic norms on their rivals. They're going to vote against the rival partisans most of the time anyway. Uh, so getting them more motivated to do so doesn't move the needle a lot. Ideally, if you're going to really defend these norms, the, you know, it's going to be getting the other 45 to 50 percent of Americans to enforce those norms uh, on their own partisans when it hurts, when it's against your interests. That's the key thing, especially if, if it's going to be a norm, it's going to actually reach some consensus level. And and so that's really tough. So we ask people questions like if somebody from your party didn't acknowledge 
the results of the last election, how likely would you be to vote for them? If they shut down polling places in areas that benefit the other party, how likely would you be to vote for them? Uh, or what would you think of that action? Uh, those kinds of questions are tough. Like you ask me that question, you know, I have a party I prefer. Um, you know, would I actually stay home or even vote against someone from my party if they did one, two, three of these actions? <clears throat> I don't know. I'd like to think I would because I care about democratic norms a lot. But I also think there's a bunch of other morally loaded stuff at stake that differentiates my party from the other party. And so you can easily see how people who care a lot about politics would have trouble defending these norms uh, and enforcing them on their own party. And that's a powerful force to overcome. And I think that's part of why the treatment effects were smaller. So we, we call these interventions, um, but they were, and attitudes, but they were on a survey uh, where uh, at most you can kind of show people a video or give them some some text and images. We didn't uh, show up at their house with their friends and, and make that big of an impact. And we asked them, you know, afterwards, some some questions. Um, but as you know, um, our anytime we try to take the uh, findings from survey experiments outside uh, of that context, um, we find that they delay the effects delay quickly uh, and uh, might not necessarily uh, match kind of real world outcomes. So, um, what? How, how likely do you think uh, these interventions would work in the real world, uh, both, um, you know, if we got people together and somehow um, put them through this, um, but then how likely would they be to, to stay with the participants in the face of, say, a year-long election campaign uh, with lots of partisan fighting designed to kind of bring them back to their sides? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so, yeah, you're right. We refer to them as interventions kind of for lack of a better expression. Um, but we, you know, we, we don't confuse them with real world, you know, field interventions. Um, and we do think that that is the next step, you know, to, to test how to apply this knowledge in the field and whether it makes a difference and under what conditions. One thing we're doing to that end is we're organizing now a grant competition where we have people, uh, researchers and practitioners pair up, work together to make a, a proposed field experiment where they take one of the insights from the challenge, implement it out in the world with the help of a partnering organization, and then evaluate it in a field experiment that's headed up by the academic part of the team. And we're, um, we're helping to form some of these teams, you know, like get pairing practitioners and academics, since folks don't necessarily know one another. Uh, and then also some folks do know one another. And we're, we got that's something like 30 grant proposals that we're, we're going through now, 35. <clears throat> so we're kind of at every stage of this project, when we run into a thorny problem, we try to crowdsource it, basically. So at first it was like, we need good ideas. We don't have enough of them. Let's crowdsource that problem. And let's try to get everybody involved. Like here we have a problem of like the survey experimental evidence is, I think, compelling and insightful, but it definitely doesn't directly relate to the field. How do we how do we close that gap? Let's crowdsource that as well. Uh, oh, the academics and practitioners don't know one another. That's a big inefficiency. Can we intervene on that to make them to help them know each other so that they can work together? So we've we've tried to get as many minds on every difficult problem as we can. But you know, so not knowing yet what will or won't work in the field and and 
really the five or six projects we're able to fund won't give us a final word on that either. It'll just be the beginning of my answer. Uh, to speculate a bit, I agree that interventions of the sort we test in survey experiments often would decay in the field. We have a lot of reason to think that a lot of our political interventions don't make a difference um, out in the world. Uh, so what can you do? The most, you know, the most efficacious way to intervene would be to fundamentally change the structure of people's information environments such that they chronically would feature the mechanisms reflected in you know, the more successful mechanisms from the challenge. So is there a way that people's um, information environments could be invoking overarching identities or featuring those at a higher rate relative to partisan identities? Is there a way that people's information environments could give them corrective information or correct information about uh, you know, the views of out-partisans rather than inaccurate information, which I think is what people get on balance now? Is there a way that people can get real life exposures to people from the other side rather than uh, only these kind of simulated caricatured ones they get from co-partisans and, and from, from themselves. Uh, the most obvious way to do that would be through social media platforms, which have a great deal of influence over people's information environments. They don't have a lot of incentive to intervene on this problem because it generally trades off with engagement for them, which basically means lower profits because the kind of content the opposite kind of content does very well on social media and keeps people coming back to social media and keeps the social media companies making money. And, uh, you know, what our approach has been has been to go to the more motivated, though less powerful actors in this space, which are the, uh, you know, the bridging organizations, nonprofits, activist groups that work all the time on these problems, try to support their efforts and get, you know, get some evidence-based clarity on what of the things they're doing makes a bigger difference and, and what makes a smaller difference or, or maybe even has backfire effects. That's the easier place for us to intervene because the motivation's there. But, you know, if you look at the lay of the field, you have these unmotivated but very powerful actors, the social media platforms. You have these very motivated but much less powerful actors, these bridging organizations, and you have no highly powerful, highly motivated actors. And so, you know, I'm tempted to be very sad about that. But then I also think, well, that's sort of in the nature of the ecology of social problems in a society, that if they elicited a bunch of powerful, uh, motivated actors, they would probably stop being social problems and would exit the space. So I don't think it's like a, an unusual lay of the land for a problem, but macro social problems are hard to work on and, and we'll, we'll do our best, you know, but I mean, I'm encouraged by the fact that there are like literally hundreds of thousands of people who work to some extent or another in these, uh, in these bridging type organizations, you know, people that are out doing something about affective polarization because they care a lot about it. Like that's, that's the beginning of, uh, you know, taking effective action. And then we're trying to bring, uh, some discerning data to help them be as strategic as possible about their actions. So I guess let me take it the other way and say maybe you've found some some easy easy interventions. Maybe all those people on the ground um, don't need to be working, and we can just uh, have the funders run the Heineken commercial uh, as much as the political ads in the in the advertising season. Um, do do we think that you know it might be easier than people think? Uh, it's just a question of getting the message through. Well, it's a really good question. I think that we found that for some outcomes, like the democratic outcomes, 
it is no easier than we think. Those are hard to treat. Uh, probably the most important outcome in the democratic space is, uh, re- I mean, this would be my read on it. My normative read would be reducing support for undemocratic candidates See, in the mass public seems like the most important space to intervene. I think that improving the quality of techniques we have there is good. Elections are won often by very small margins. You can bring a whole bunch of potentially moneyed or motivated volunteers, uh, moneyed actors, motivated volunteers to the table, motivated by the democracy part uh, that wouldn't normally normally work on an election. Um, and then this is helping, you know, like provide them more techniques for intervening. Um, so I think that that's a space where a little bit could go a long ways. That isn't a very motive because it overlaps with electoral politics in complicated ways that that's a sort of un, not fully activated space. Like right now, the people who care a lot about democracy are Democrats and the Republicans don't care much about democracy, or at least, you know, they focus more on winning, on winning elections as do the Democrats. And so we're, we haven't yet gotten like a third force motivated that says Democrat or Republican, we're coming in to support the pro-democracy candidates because that's actually becoming a threat, you know, to the, to the country. Um, but as that emerges and it may, uh, this would, we would have some techniques and the effect sizes don't have to be enormous, uh, to be influential there because of how elections work. The, um, on the flip side, we did have some pretty big effect size interventions, you know, like the Heineken commercial, uh, which did have a persistent effect two weeks later, you know, on partisan animosity from just viewing this video. And so I think it would help, you know, for every American to see the, the Heineken commercial or more content like it. I think it could only help. Um, I think that for the activists in this space that are more focused on uh, getting people to break bread together or sit down in the living room and have a conversation together, that their instinct that real in-person interactions even more effective. I think they're probably exactly right about that. And some of our own experience facilitating dyadic Zoom conversations across party lines suggests you can achieve even higher effect sizes that way. Um, And so I I think that we can take some of these techniques and potentially improve uh, how we structure those interactions, some of the features we add to them, how we prep people for them, how we, you know, how we guide people through the interaction. Uh, because I think that that, I still think that they're right, that that's a very good way to intervene. So I wouldn't like say living room conversations, you should, you know, shut down your operation and just do, you know, just show people the Heineken ad or spend all your money on placing Heineken ads on, on TV or something. I think, yeah, even based on our own data, the cross partisan conversations are great. And the question is, how do you scale them? Um, and that's a, a challenge. So you've targeted uh, the American public with these interventions, um, but I think most people would agree that uh, political elites uh, are uh, at least as responsible uh, for uh, bringing them about. Um, I know you have done some work on trying to influence the opinions of legislators. Um, So what do you think, I guess, about the the chance to to change views uh, among people who are directly involved uh, in in this process with the same kinds of uh, innovation interventions work uh, with with political elites um, uh, is there more or less opportunity to change their views yeah it's a great question we have a short paper that's uh, forthcoming now at uh, 
at Proceedings, the National Academy of Sciences, where we recruited a sample of mostly state level politicians to uh, to you know go through a meta perceptions correction experiment where they you know give their guesses about what the American public. Uh, what levels of support for partisan violence, anti-democratic attitudes, and partisan animosity the, the the American public reports, and specifically rival partisans report, and then we correct that. And that correction is not very big for partisan animosity. People tend to estimate that 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 their rivals have high levels of you know of, of cold feelings towards them, and they're right. <laughs> uh, so that correction is pretty small. Uh, but people tend to you know really overestimate how much their rivals support political violence and uh, overestimate to a good extent, to a significant extent, how anti-democratic they are. And so we found that this intervention reduced um, that people you know, were inaccurate in similar ways to the general public. They were a little less inaccurate than the general public, which you might expect since uh, politicians need to know something about what the general public thinks in order to keep getting elected and so on. Uh, and, it, and they think about it all day, every day. Um, but we, we found that even this group that you might think would have really stable, you know, well-considered views on, on these things, that they even had some malleability in particular on their own support for undemocratic practices. They supported undemocratic practices less after this correction, which I think thinking about the psychology of these folks, it, it fits well with the sort of, uh, that, that, that a lot of the escalation that we're seeing around consideration of undemocratic moves comes from perceiving that they have to do it because the other side's going to do it. Uh, the kind of don't bring a knife to a gunfight logic. And that when you say, oh, actually, that's a that's a pretty big misperception. The other side's not as, you know, uh, uh, the, you know doesn't support that as much as you think. Uh, they turn it down a little bit. So that's encouraging because this is, as you said, like a, a way more powerful and influential set of actors to, to treat. And interesting that even though they they knew more about uh, public opinion and their levels on all these things were a little lower, a little bit like healthier, I would say, than the general public's. Uh, they were still treatable with this technique. They were still wrong enough uh, to where correcting was was helpful. And you've also done uh, some research showing that these uh, elite uh, attitudes, uh, if you can uh, highlight them, uh, can actually change uh, public attitudes, especially among uh, say Republican elites changing public attitudes in the COVID space or in the anti-democratic tendencies. Um, so I guess if that's the case, uh, they don't seem to believe <laughs> that it will work or they uh, seem to, to believe that uh, they, they kind of can't go against the initial uh, base attitudes. So, um, you know, mm -hmm. what what could actually change the direction of, of expert cues uh, that uh, people are getting from from elites um, and why do people have the why do elites seem to have the perception that they they really can't um, uh, affect those views yeah it's such a good question because you know so and the way we approach this is like if there's some, some sort of we would say deleterious uh, pattern of public opinion related to polarization where there are trusted in group or in party leaders, that are going away from the apparent partisan consensus, leverage them. You know, that's gonna be your highest leverage way to intervene. So what I mean is you have a vaccination problem, but Donald Trump actually happens to be pro-vaccine, even though most Republican leaders are anti-vax or are not commenting on it, leverage Donald Trump. 
you know, like present people with Donald Trump endorsing vaccination, that'll help. And we found that at least for the survey experimental data, that was just about the most effective intervention in sort of the early vaccine days, like of 2021, of anything that we tested or that we saw tested. And then it was replicated in a field experiment, uh, speaking to the, you know, that there is a path from survey experiments to field experiments. Uh, a field experiment that was run by Brad Larson and colleagues had shown that you could, you could make ads that had this Trump endorsing vaccination content and increase vaccination rates out, out in America. Uh, we did the same thing with election legitimacy. Okay, most Republicans early in 2021 are saying are questioning the results of the 2020 presidential election. Um, some of them are not commenting on it, but then a small number like Mitch McConnell uh, are saying, actually, this was a totally legitimate election and, and there's no credible evidence for fraud here. So uh, leverage that, you know, promote that person, get that person and, and others like them in front of Republicans, and that will increase their faith in elections. And we found that it did. So the interesting thing to me is, is your question of like, if that works and we have, if we had a perfect information system, which we clearly don't, that wouldn't make a difference because people would already know, uh, oh, 80% of Republicans think the election was fraudulent, but Mitch McConnell and a significant number of, of dissenters say the opposite. They would already know, you know, but they I think the biggest problem here is they don't already know. So when we would show people Donald Trump promoting vaccination, for example, most people didn't know that Donald Trump supported vaccination, even though he had publicly supported vaccination on several occasions. It had gotten national news and so on. But within the conservative media bubble, people, this was not being promoted. You know, this was not being you know, like Trump supporting vaccination was not being platformed. Uh, and likewise, Mitch McConnell supporting the 2020 election was not platformed. A lot of Republicans didn't know that there was significant dissent early on on that view. Uh, so you could kind of think of it as going against the media prioritization of voices that are being heard, in this case, by conservative Americans, that that's, that's why the intervention works. That's why the information is, is salient and novel, because they're just not hearing it within a very biased uh, media ecosystem. I'm sure there you could find equivalents on the on the left as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and so that makes it hard to scale as well because you're you're going up against that apparatus. So you've been working uh, obviously with a, a large team, um, but in particular have worked uh, across disciplines uh, with a political scientist and a psychologist on these uh, uh, projects. Um, so reflect a little bit on how the disciplines uh, think about polarization and what their contributions are and what their blind spots are, uh, maybe in the context of, of running it by one another. Oh, yeah, that's that's a fun question. I Yeah, and I, I am fortunate or I, I, yeah, I enjoy having a sort of multidisciplinary background, sociology itself, a kind of multi-paradigm, multidisciplinary field of sorts uh, where we, we have to read outside of the discipline as well as within. So for me, I enjoy sort of code switching with my political science colleagues and my psychology colleagues and, and, and thinking like they do and then trying to bring that back to other spaces. And uh, so for me, it's very, very profitable to it's just and, and, and it's really fun to engage with people who approach these problems really differently. Um, you know, at a high level, the difference I notice between psychological political psychologists and political science political psychologists, these are the folks I am most often uh, collaborating with these days, the psychological politi political psychologists, they want to find human universals as much as possible. Like they would like to find just like fundamental 
aspects of human cognition and behavior that will shape political attitudes and behavior in any context. Um, and, and if they have a fault, it's celebrating the discovery of these prematurely, you know, um, holding up like, yay, we found another human universal great news. And that it just doesn't even apply in a parliamentary system, let's say. Um, then, uh, the political scientists are, you know, very, very good at identifying political psychological dynamics that are operant in a particular context that really are mattering for, let's say, contemporary American politics. Uh, they drill down on those questions really, really well. Um, and then if they perhaps have a weak spot, it's maybe not trying enough to find those like trans situational uh, mechanisms or develop general theories that would articulate the political behavioral dynamics and then the contextual moderation uh, what aspects of political institutions and systems moderate that political behavioral dynamic such that we would see it in this slightly different way in this other context? There's, I think sometimes a willingness to just be like, well, that's very hard, which is true. So we'll just do it in, in the American political setting, you know. Um, but it would be great to do it, to, you know, to do the more general theoretical project as far as we can do it. Um, I, I am no role model for <laughs> doing the best version of either of these. I, if anything, I probably do it a bit more like the political scientists of saying like, well, I'm just going to try to do as well as I can in the American politics setting. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but if I had to highlight strengths and weaknesses, that's probably how I would do it. And, and this line of analysis is heavily influenced by my colleague, Neil Malhotra, who I think does a really nice job of laying out this terrain uh, and articulates all this better than I do. And one thing he said is he was like, you know, Lord Ross and Lepper, this original confirmation bias paper that, you know, Lee Ross and colleagues uh, led back in the late 70s is like just a perfect work of psychological, political psychology. You know, it's like it's a phenomenon very new to, to show at the time that is true in a lot of contexts. And is, you know, it's not the final word at all. In particular, Bayesian models of political cognition are, are really substantially revising how we think about this. Uh, but, it you know, that is the psychological approach at its best. You know, a new thing that you'll see in communist Russia, but you'll also see it in, in the U.S. and you'll see it in 1970 and you'll see it in 2023. Uh, and that the psychologists are good at, they're, you know, they're arguably better at doing that because they're trying really hard to do exactly that. Um, but then if I was to make a list of my 10 favorite political psych findings of the last few years, you know, the majority would be probably from political science. So uh, your study also contrasts a bit uh, with uh, the replication literature where we have mm -hmm. um, uh, lots of mega studies, but they tend to find pretty small effects. Um, you have uh, done what uh, a lot of people are suggesting, which is that you've been collaborative. Um, you've taken proposals from lots of different uh, people um, and worked together uh, in a big research team uh, to evaluate them. Um, so reflect a little bit on whether, uh, I don't want to say you found a, a solution, but at least uh, you, you've uh, highlighted some, some good trends um, in, the, in the social psychology uh, world um, and maybe uh, what the the downsides uh, were to to trying to do this this global uh, cooperation. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, yeah, and it is a kind of striking contrast of like you read Nozick at all, 2015. You're like, oh, these social psych experiments anywhere replicating, you know, at a very low level, 
uh, well, just a concerning level, you know, 40%, maybe a little less. You even read like Kammerer et al's, you know, science paper and you're like, oh, it's better in experimental economics. It's not like radically better. It's not like 80%. That's sad. <laughs> we don't like that either. So it's not just the psychologists that need to improve. Uh, and so you might have this dismal view. And I think that was uh, going into our study of how much, how much success these interventions will have. And that was reflected in the forecasting where the academics were pretty pessimistic about the interventions relative to reality and actually, interestingly, relative to the practitioners who maybe were, it was less salient to them, these recent replication problems. But then we get like 22 to 23 out of 25 interventions being successful on partisan animosity anyway. This is the most, you know, that's the most positive pattern. There were other ones where um, the interventions weren't that successful. And you're like, oh, well, what's going on? So I'm just like recapitulating your question here. But and I, and I think one answer to that is political science. Political science has been really rigorous about publishing code and publishing data sets and, you know, making it possible for people to check their work. They have worked with fewer self-generated data sets than psychologists, you know, so they're more likely to use the ANES, for example, which anybody can download and check your work on very easily. Um, political scientists uh, also have been better about publishing null effects and making light of them being important. And so there's a, a different culture that I think would lead you to expect the average political science idea in 2021, when we were collecting these ideas, is going to be more replicable than social psychology and also your average just sort of social science discipline, perhaps, because it, it had good practice. It had above average, above average practices and had for a while. So the fact that there's a substantial role of political science here is helpful. I also think that most of the social psych work in this space was from like the last five, six to seven years and social psych got a lot better, you know, like in that period. Uh, you you have a great book on this, on how it's like social science has gotten so much better, which I really appreciate that optimistic take on it. Having been primarily a social psychologist over the last 10 to 15 years, it's just striking, you know, like the terrain and how it incentivizes good work that's valid and replicable. It's just changed enormously in a way that radically changes the incentive structure for researchers. And so at that same time, polarization is emerging as a problem. And so it's just kind of set up perfectly for the social psych knowledge in this space to be unusually replicable. Um, uh, and I think is a great sign for things to come and supportive of the Grossman thesis that, you know, that social science is, is doing a lot better and that it's a, a great time to be a social scientist because of it, you know, because our uh, more than arguably ever before, our interests are aligned with the interests of our science, you know, like we have set up uh, much, much improved, you know, curbs and, you know, barriers that keep us doing our work in a way that's good for the collective scientific product. So that's my my main thought on why we had good replication rates or why why our research looked similar to uh, uh, or sorry, excuse me, looks so different from like Nozick et al. and the very the many lab studies. Uh, I will say on the flip side that we also let people submit pilot data uh, with their intervention and that we selected the 10% of submissions we found most promising. So it's also like this, it's not directly comparable to like Nozick at all, uh, where, you know, yeah, they're, they're replicating actual published studies, randomly selected. In our case, we took the ones we thought were most likely to work. So that's a huge factor as well. 
So what's next uh, for the Strengthening Democracy Challenge uh, and maybe this this framework that you have going where you take ideas uh, from lots of different researchers and, and try to test them in a similar format? Yeah, so we're working on a number of uh extensions of this work uh were um with with a with a, a group of folks we're working on potentially uh crowdsourcing get out the vote tactics to see if we can uh identify uh even more efficacious ways to to intervene and promote voter turnout in the united states we're also working on a collaboration with researchers in the israeli-palestinian context to see if some of the insights from the challenge can be ported there um combined with uh, intervention ideas from the Israeli-Palestinian context and some original crowdsourcing to try to uh, do something ideally better uh, for the Israeli-Palestinian context, which of course the conflict is worse there. So we'll we'll need to do it better to to contribute knowledge. Um, we are also working on um, you know a, a variety of other ideas where uh, I guess the. The way I would put it is that we're trying not to just let the sort of uh, acceptance of polarization in intergroup conflict as a sort of consensus normative bad determine the outcomes we're working on. Uh, so, for example, I think that um, there's good reason to think that union density in the U.S. should be higher, that, it, you know, that working Americans would do better with higher unionization rate. And so we're working on a challenge now to see how you can motivate Americans to be interested in joining unions at a higher rate. Uh, what you know, what kinds of appeals are more or less effective there? Um, that's a real departure from working on something like democratic attitudes or voter turnout, where you poll people and 80, 90% of people would say, yeah, that's good. If you know, union support in the US right now is really high, you know, it's like 70% or something, you poll people on whether getting more folks interested in joining unions is a good thing, you'd probably get I don't know, 60, 65% of people saying yes. Uh, so it's a little bit more of a contested public good. Um, but I'm trying to think of the most effective ways to put this kind of methodology and technology to, to, to good ends. And, and so we don't want to just work on the high consensus uh, public goods uh, because it, it seems like you're sort of, you're not necessarily targeting uh, the biggest social problems. So you mentioned uh, that uh, some people aren't necessarily on board uh, with polarization as the universal bad. There has been uh, some recent pushback to people saying that uh, if if one side is operating anti-democratically uh, or one side is uh, operating against uh, uh fundamental rights, uh, then then people should uh, be upset uh, about that side. Um, so I guess to, to what extent do you do you take uh, that that uh, critique? Um, and to what extent does it matter? It, you know, in your case, the you know, the meta perceptions, you know, were off. Um, but right. you know, we might have a case where anti-democratic attitudes actually grow and are, are quite strong um, on one side and kind of what are the implications of there, there being a reason uh, why people might have these negative attitudes about one of the sides? Yeah, I think it's a great question, really complicated and sort of hard, hard to say simple, definitive things. <clears throat> I mean, here are some thoughts on this. I do think a critique I hear from some of my most valued colleagues who are sort of skeptical of polarization research or some polarization research is that uh, there's just too much of it, you know, like that there as a, as a 
as a portion of the American politics research space, it's too it's too big uh, relative to other problems uh, that we have in American politics, and that that dynamic of we work on the very very high consensus stuff, and when we when we greet it in peer review, we are friendly to it because we say, oh, it checks the box of working on a social problem that's largely uncontested. We all agree this is a bad thing. M- moving on, whereas other work, you know, on racial justice or on you know gender inequality or poverty or what have you. Uh, we might be less likely. It, it, the papers may struggle uh, in the ecology of publishing American politics work because that box for some people doesn't get checked and holds them up in review. And they say, wait, actually, this isn't a consensus social problem or not everybody would agree. Therefore, this this needs to prove itself in a way that the polarization papers don't have to or has to justify itself. I think that I agree with that critique. I think we have an overfocus on polarization. I think it 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 stems in part from this uh, dynamic of normative consensus being, you know, the normative consensus social problems get studied uh, without um, without much trouble in peer review, without, you know, without being held up on that point. I don't, ent- I also think that those longstanding norms around normative consensus were invented for good reason and to stop, uh, you know, the primarily left-wing social sciences scientists from just doing uh, highly ideologically biased work that they like, um, but isn't as scientific as it could be. And I don't know what the best way is to find a new set of rules, but I think that it would be great to elevate that conversation and have it in a really intentional way so that we could adjust the rules to make sure we're producing the most valuable knowledge. Um, so in that way, I really agree with the polarization critique. I often think that as, as you alluded to, some of the sorts of interventions that are suggested by the polarization literature are really hard to debate with, like uh, correcting misperceptions of what other people think. Like, how could you defend that we ought to misperceive what other people think? You know, like that seems like a hard ground to hold <laughs> in, a, in a debate. It seems like we should want to be calibrated to reality. So some of the interventions, I think, evade this critique pretty well. Um, But I think the toughest one is the point that a lot of this work is done in a symmetrical fashion as though the anti-democratic energy in American society is symmetrical, but it's not. And here, I think the truth is really interesting and nuanced. If you go out and measure anti-democratic attitudes in the mass public, which I think are clearly a part of the problem, uh, you don't see massive differences between the left and right. You see a latent anti-democratic willingness on the left, I'm just quoting the public opinion data here, you know, you just go out and ask people like how willing you would be to vote for somebody who denied the results of an election that disadvantaged their party. And Republicans report higher levels of that willingness. Democrats report concerning levels of that willingness. Um, and you can think about conspiracy theorizing after Kerry lost in 2004, you know, there are examples. Um, and and that's not being capitalized on by Republican elites, right? So right there, we get some helpful data that like there is an anti-democratic latent sentiment on the left and right, it's worse on the right. And then the bigger difference is is the behavior of the elites, which is like massively worse on the Republican side in 2023 than on the Democrat side. Now, to me, that helps us understand our problem and and where to intervene on it and where it's going to be hard to intervene on it. Um, So I, I think what we do with all this polarization knowledge we're generating that's a lot that's where a lot of the normative considerations come in and i think the data is really helpful so like 
in our study, it might seem like we're suggesting some sort of symmetry between Democrats and Republicans' anti-democratic attitudes just because we studied both of them. But I think the alternative of not testing the interventions on Democrats because they're not raiding the Capitol right now, <clears throat> and maybe won't be, uh, I, I certainly hope, I don't believe, I don't agree with that because I think by testing these interventions on Democrats as well as Republicans, we find out, for example, that pretty much all the interventions have similar effects across party lines. And I think that's helpful scientific knowledge. I think that a practitioner should walk up to these data and definitely consider that the anti-democratic moves are happening on the right far more than on the left in 2023. And think about that in allocating scarce time and money to intervening on the problem. And then hopefully we're offering them helpful tools. Uh, but I think it was the scientifically better move to study this on both sides, even if I would not advise a practitioner to make a lot of use of the, the Democrat data in 2023, if that makes sense. It does. Anything we didn't get to that you wanted to include or any take home message you want to leave us with? No, I just uh, I just really appreciate these questions and the engagement of the work. And for us, uh, working in this multidisciplinary space is so rewarding because we get access to so many cool new methods and, and ideas. And so uh, in particular, just having a background in social psychology and reading more and more political science over the years, it's just, you know, it's very enriching and, uh, and, it, and it helps us confront uh, weaknesses in our work and try to try to improve them. Also want to say, Matt, thanks for doing this podcast for all these years. I've I've assigned uh, episodes of this on a on a graduate syllabi on graduate syllabi and uh, shared episodes with colleagues and and so on. I mean, it's really a great resource. Um, it's a it's a tremendous resource. There's a lot more to learn. The science of politics is available biweekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, linked on our website. Reducing Polarization with Shared Values. How Marriage and Inequality Reinforce Partisan Polarization. Compromise Still Works in Congress and with Voters. How Political Values and Social Influence Drive Polarization. And How Much Are Polls Misrepresenting Americans. Thanks to Rob Willer for joining me. Please check out Mega Study Identifying Effective Interventions to Strengthen Americans' Democratic Attitudes. And then listen in next time. Thank you.